Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Aaron Louie. I serve as the music pastor here at MVBC, so you've probably seen me behind an instrument. It is a privilege to share God's word with you this morning. As we continue in our series of Shine the Light, I invite you to turn your, in your Bibles to Romans 15. If we could actually get my slide up, that'd be awesome. So just a review of this series so far. The first week of that series, Pastor Greg spoke about how our union with Christ in his death changes us completely. In the second week, Pastor Dave spoke about how Jesus frees us so we can be servants who reveal him. And in the third week, Pastor Dan spoke about how Jesus strengthens us so we can endure in ways that reveal him. So I am continuing the series this morning and examining how does Christ in us reveal Christ to our community. But first, let me start off by asking an important question. Who would win? So we love to consider this hypothetical question We take two respected heroes, historical figures, maybe fictional characters, maybe groups of people, um, or even animals, and then debate which one would come out on top in a fight. For example, shark versus killer whale. Who would win? Or Larry Bird versus Kevin Durant. Apparently, that's a debate. Those are basketball stars, for for those who don't know. Napoleon versus Alexander the Great. And of course, the age-old question, Batman versus Superman. They even made a movie about it, but I didn't watch it, so I'm not going to comment on that. Well, this morning, I'd like to pose a not-so-theoretical super battle of epic proportions, one that has been going on in churches for thousands of years and is undoubtedly going on in our church today. And that is the battle between disputable matters, that was just referenced in the scripture reading, what we consider as non-essentials to the gospel, and gospel unity. Now, why do I put those two particular things up here like it could be this grand battle and a hotly debated topic? Well, because it kind of is, unfortunately. When Paul wrote to his, letter, his letter to the Romans, he wrote to a church that had both Jewish and Gentile Christians trying to worship together. The Jewish Christians in particular are coming into this with thousands of years of Jewish writings, tradition, scriptures, regulations telling them this is how you live, this is what you do, this is what you don't do. That's their childhood superhero. This is the way that God told us to live. This is how our forefathers lived. And they are being confronted by the gospel and the call for gospel unity with their Gentile brethren. So that is an epic battle. The Gentile Christians, for their part, are not coming with the same tradition, but having believed in the gospel, 
they are still being called to pursue gospel unity with their Jewish brethren. And they need to wrestle with questions like, well, why do we need to put up with these Jewish Christians? They obviously don't understand that we are free from the law and nothing is unclean for us. And so there is a battle of epic proportions between disputable matters and gospel unity. And I think you should know which one should win every time. But as we all know, there are way too many churches out there limping along because they lost a foot or a leg or an arm because gospel unity lost to disputable matters. Have you witnessed this tragedy? Have you experienced or known people who either could not receive others with different non-gospel convictions, or they themselves were not received? Are you hurting this morning because the one place where the gospel should have brought people together seems like it's full of things that push people away because they are different? Is there hope for us, for the church, for you? There is hope. Let's look at Romans 15, starting in verse 1. We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Verse 4, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may be with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, receive one another, just as Christ also received us, to the glory of God. Let's pray. God, as we look into your word, I pray that you would guide our hearts to your truth. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. And I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, I'm focusing primarily on verses 5 through 13 of chapter 15, which is the climax of Paul's exhortation to the strong and to the weak in faith. But in order to understand what Paul is talking about with the strong and the weak, we need to at least get a summary of chapter 14 up until this point. In Romans 14, Paul instructs the Roman Christians to receive one who is weak in faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. These doubtful things or disputable matters or even opinions, as some translations put it, are non-essentials to the gospel. These are things that are neither required nor prohibited by God, and thus it doesn't threaten the gospel if you believe a certain way. So Paul says, receive the weak in faith, but not to disputes over these non-essentials. And in this section, he defines what it means by strong and weak faith. 
So John Barclay puts it this way. The difference between the strong and weak faith is the degree to which faith, although always expressed in culturally specific practice, is disaggregated or separated from any one cluster of cultural norms. So in other words, if you could set aside cultural practices, the things that you do and don't do because of the culture you live in, what does your faith in Jesus Christ allow you to do or not do? Paul gives a couple examples, such as eating meat or holding one day as more important than the other. And if you believe that your faith forbids you to eat meat, then Paul says your faith is weak in that area. Basically, if you take something that isn't sin and convince yourself that it is sin, you aren't trusting what God says about that particular thing. And so your faith is weak in that area. It doesn't make you an inferior Christian. It's just the reality about where you are in your faith with that particular issue. As Paul is writing to the Romans, the weak Christians were primarily the Jewish ones, while the strong Christians in this area were the Gentile Christians. As we continue summarizing Romans 14, Paul instructs, if you partake, don't despise the one who doesn't. If you, part, if you don't partake, don't judge the one who does, because in both cases, God has received them. Basically, don't use your conviction as a weapon to harm your brothers and sisters. Paul does state what is objectively true about those particular disputable matters, Verse 14, there is nothing unclean of itself. And verse 20, all things are pure. Yet if someone cannot do or partake in something with faith, then it is sin to them. And that might strike you as a little weird, a little strange, because this passage seems to, make, uh, seems to say that sin can be subjective. But that's also what Jesus did in Matthew 5 when he ups the ante on some of the Ten Commandments. Let's take adultery, for example. Matthew 5, 28 to 20, 27 to 28. You have heard it said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus makes it clear that sin comes from the heart, a thought or an action, something that breaks God's law or goes against him. But in this particular case, the only external indication that someone may or may not be sinning is if they are looking at a woman. That's why you can't automatically judge someone's actions as sinful if that action, that particular action is not actual sin according to the Bible. Maybe you know that if you did that action in a particular context, it would be sinful. So then you would need to say, I need to avoid contexts that would make me much more prone to that sin. And so you can see how convictions are formed, many for very good reasons. I believe everyone should have convictions. As you are learning and growing in your faith, you will realize where your faith is weaker in some areas. And you may need to avoid certain things that other people do not need to avoid. And as you grow in your faith, your convictions may or sometimes even should change. 
but you can also see how people can add to Jesus' words or take them and create new standards that go beyond what he said. And the danger is that people can teach these new standards as truth. For example, whoever looks at a woman to lust for her, that's clearly sin. But if you say, okay, I don't want to give lust any chance, so I'll set my standard one step back just to be safe and say, okay, let's shorten it to whoever looks at a woman. Now, if I said, okay, everyone needs to hold to this standard to avoid lust, no one looks at women. If I say that I'm creating a culture in which looking at women is sinful, but that's not true. If we go back a couple verses, we'll see Jesus address murder and anger. Verse 21 and 22, you have heard it said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And so you say, okay, I don't want to be in danger of the judgment. Let's focus on that anger part. Don't be angry. But anger is not a sin either. Both of these examples, while they are kind of extreme, they are examples of weak faith, as Paul defines it in Romans 14. And it was tough to navigate back then for Jewish and Gentile Christians trying to worship together with different convictions, and it is still tough today to navigate. One thing is clear, though, for Paul. While there is objective truth about what is unclean and what is pure, what is sin for everyone, what is not, Paul says that using that knowledge in a way that will spiritually harm a weaker brother is never acceptable. Instead, Paul says that knowledge should be used to edify. So the strong have the obligation to bear with the weaknesses of the weak and not to please themselves, looking to Christ as the ultimate example of not pleasing himself. We aren't to deliberately offend weaker brothers, but we are also not to receive them to disputes over doubtful things. We are also to have their ultimate good in mind. And what ultimately is best for someone who has weak faith? It's for them to grow. It's for them to become strong in faith. Christ himself conformed to Jewish law in order to ultimately bring freedom from the law. And so we find endurance and comfort in the scriptures given to us because it helps us understand God's plan for the salvation of the world. Which brings us to verse 5. Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus, that you may with one mind and one mouth glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In verses 5 and 6, we find Paul's description of gospel unity. And it's not just unity, it's unity around the gospel. So, in order to get a good understanding of how all this ties together, Let's break down verses 3 to 6, kind of in reverse order, because I want to start with the end result. Paul wants 
the Roman church to glorify God in unity with one mind and one mouth. So in order to glorify God in unity, they need to be like-minded toward fellow believers in the church, following Jesus' example and not pleasing themselves. In order to be like-minded toward believers, they need to depend on God who supplies patience and comfort. In order to better understand that patience and comfort, they should go to the scriptures to understand God's plan for the salvation of the world. And then in order to understand dependence on God, they need to look to Christ, who did not please himself. Basically, what Paul is saying is that in order to understand unity, I need to start at the gospel. The good news that Jesus died for me, paid the price for my sins, and that he rose again according to the scriptures. And I need to understand that every person who believes that same gospel is also a part of God's people, just like I am. In a church, gospel unity looks like this. Glorify God with one mind. So agree on what's important. Agree on what's essential. Not necessarily agreeing on everything, but sharing a common goal and purpose, and that is to glorify God. Gospel unity also looks like this. Glorifying God with one mouth. That suggests unity in action. Not only thinking the same way, but acting on it saying the same things, proclaiming the same truths, singing the same things, which also means worshiping together rather than separately. So based on all of this, here's the definition that I came up with for gospel unity. God empowered like-mindedness toward one another, which leads to glorifying God as we worship him together. So gospel unity is God-empowered like-mindedness toward one another, which leads to glorifying God as we worship him together. Douglas Moo writes this, only when the Roman community is united, only when the Christians in Rome can act with one accord, speak with one voice, will they be able to glorify God in the way that he deserves to be glorified. Divisions in the church over non-essentials diverts precious time and energy from its basic mission, the proclamation of the gospel and the glorifying of God. Verse 7, so therefore, in light of all this, receive one another, just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Because gospel unity is so important, Paul gives us this command receive one another. Receiving someone is not the same as tolerating them or saying, yeah, they're in my church, but I don't really associate with them. Receiving means much more than that. It means accepting one another as family, or even stronger, as a part of you, because you are a part of the body of Christ. As we look at Paul's instructions from this verse on to Verse 13, so 7 through 13, we'll discover four reasons why we should receive one another in gospel unity. The first reason why we should receive one another in gospel unity is because Christ has received us. Verse 
remember how Christ received you. If you go back a few chapters in Romans to chapter 5, we'll be reminded. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely a righteous man, one will die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. We were received by God while we were still sinners, enemies of God. Christ received us without respect to how we measured up to his holiness. And so for Roman Christians to receive each other, they had to remember that not only did Christ receive them as Jews or Gentiles, he also received their cultural counterparts. They're now part of the same body. The same is true for us. On the flip side, if we are commanded to receive one another in the way that Christ has received us, then if we don't receive others, what does that say about us? Well, if we don't receive one another, one of three things is true. One, you don't know how Christ has received you. And if you don't know how Christ has received you, you only need to look to the gospel. To see your sin before God and call out to Jesus, save me from my sins. I believe that you died on the cross to pay for my sins. And he will receive you. The second thing that might be true is that we've forgotten how Christ has received us. This is where we need to do what we call preach the gospel to yourself. We need to be continually reminded of how Christ received us. And the third thing that might be true if we don't receive others is that we refuse to apply how God received us. In that case, we are like the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, who, though he received forgiveness and mercy for a great debt, refused to pass it along to others. Or we are like the prodigal son's older brother, who couldn't accept that his sinner brother was accepted by the father and refused to receive him. If we are refusing to receive others in the way that Christ received us, then we need to repent. We need to turn from that way of thinking. We need to soak ourselves in the magnitude of what Christ has done for us so that when we look at a fellow brother or sister in Christ, we also see what he has done for them. Let's preach the gospel to ourselves every day so that we don't lose sight of what it means to be received by him. The second reason to receive one another in gospel unity is that it brings God glory. A couple chapters back in Romans 9, Paul is explaining why God allowed Israel to reject him temporarily. And that is so that salvation would come to the Gentiles as well. So Romans 9, 22 to 24. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long-suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, 
which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. If bringing salvation to the Gentiles brings God glory, then the Roman Jewish Christians have no business rejecting the Gentiles. In fact, to not receive them would be to be rejecting God's plan to make his glory known. So for both the Roman Christians and for us today, receiving one another brings God glory because it demonstrates the power of his gospel. If the gospel is so powerful, then it should bring together people who have no earthly reason to be together, right? So if we receive one another, we are proving that the gospel works. On the flip side, if we don't receive one another, then it means we're not interested in bringing God glory. Maybe we're more interested in bringing glory to ourselves or at least serving ourselves by doing what's more comfortable than obeying God in this way. Can you truly say, I want to glorify God, then ignore such a clear command to receive one another? The third reason to receive one another in gospel unity is because it is God's plan for the salvation of the world. We touched on this theme already, but verses 8 through 12 help solidify this because they focus on showing how the Gentiles were always a part of God's plan, all the way back to the promises he made to Abraham. Starting in verse 8, now I say that Jesus Christ has become a servant to the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made to the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So Jesus Christ became a servant to the circumcision. He was born as a Jew in the line of David for the truth of God, basically to prove that God is faithful to his word. What truth is he promising? proving here. The promises, promises made to Abraham, that Genesis 12, and at the end of that promise, it says, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, which means that the Gentiles are included in God's plan for salvation. God wanted to extend mercy to the Gentiles, and they will glorify him for it. The next few verses in in chapter 15 are quotations from the Old Testament, which Paul uses to show that the Gentiles were no afterthought in God's salvation plan. They're clearly written in there. As it is written, for this reason I will confess to you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. This is a quotation from either Psalm 1849 or 2 Samuel 2250. Both of these passages refer to the same event. David is writing a song to God about his deliverance from his enemies, including the hand of Saul. 2 Samuel chapter 22 comes, that song comes at the end of that book after a lengthy description of David's military history. There's civil war, there's war against the Gentile nations in which David subdued the Gentiles, revolts, and after all of it, 
David writes a song that praises God for delivering him through it all, even as far as bringing the Gentiles into submission. So the I in this quotation, of course, refers to David, but we could also read this song prophetically or messianically, in which case I would refer to Christ. If we do that, then Christ is praising God for subduing the Gentiles and bringing them under submission. However, this is not the same kind of subduing of the Gentiles that David did with armies and warfare. Instead, think of it as God extending his kingdom, his righteous rule, and then bringing the Gentiles into that kingdom. Verse 10, and again he says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. This comes from Deuteronomy 32:43, the song of Moses. Now, not only the Gentiles are brought into submission under God's rule and his grace, they are rejoicing alongside of the Jews, God's people. They are worshiping together, Jews and Gentiles. Verse 11, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, laud him, all you peoples. This comes from Psalm 117, 1, and it, it makes a similar point. And then verse 12, and again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse. He and he who shall rise to reign over the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. This comes from Isaiah 11:10. The root of Jesse is actually referring to a descendant of Jesse, not Jesse's forefathers. Because earlier in the chapter, Isaiah refers to Christ as a branch that will grow out of Jesse's roots. But the message is the same. Christ, a descendant of Jesse, will rise to reign over the Gentiles, and in him the Gentiles shall have hope. So these four Old Testament references serve to hammer home the point that it was always God's plan to bring salvation to the Gentiles. So if we are to receive one another because it is God's plan, then what does not receiving one another say about us? If we don't receive, it's like we are opposing God's plan to have the whole world worship him. And it's not just that those people over there can worship by themselves and we'll worship over here by ourselves. Verse 10 says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. God's plan is to have the whole world worship together in gospel unity. So the fourth reason to receive one another in gospel unity is that it builds our faith. Verse 13 now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So you could just take this verse out of context, and it's a nice prayer about hope and joy and peace. But since it comes after all that we've looked at today, about gospel unity, about receiving one another, let's take it in that context. This verse wraps up Paul's entire exhortation on the strong versus weak from chapters 14 and 15. But it also comes specifically after the section of the Gentiles. And the message is clear. God's plan 
is supposed to give hope. This is God saying, Roman Christians, this is what I intended for your community. Jewish and Gentile Christians worshiping together. You know, it's one thing if you're trying to do something difficult and it's a long shot and you're not sure if it's going to work out or not. But it's another thing if God says, this is my plan, my will for you. That would have given the Roman Christians hope that they could do it. And that should give us hope today as well. So undoubtedly, receiving one another in gospel community is not an easy thing to do. It's something that we must all pursue in faith. And with that in mind, let's look again at verse 13 to see who is doing all the work. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God is filling us with joy and peace in believing. And the Holy Spirit is causing us to abound in hope. It takes faith to pursue gospel community. But when we do, it also builds our faith. So this morning, we came to a definition of gospel unity, and that was God-empowered like-mindedness toward one another, which leads to glorifying God as we worship him together. We also looked at four reasons Paul gave us to receive one another in gospel unity. And that's one, Christ received us. Two, it brings God glory. Three, it's God's plan for the salvation of the world. And four, it builds our faith. So let's sum it up by saying this. Jesus enables us to receive one another so we can reveal the power of the gospel in our community. Jesus enables us to receive one another so we can reveal the power of the gospel in our community. Are you ready to take the next step of faith in pursuing gospel unity? Imagine a community where there is more joy and peace than judging and despising. Imagine a church where its members are focused on receiving others and finding joy in the common goal of glorifying God and worshiping together. Where those who are a part of the community are convinced that they are accepted by Christ, even if they have different convictions on disputable matters. What if new converts, what if people from different cultures, what if our children who are growing up in an ever-changing culture could all be a part of a gospel community where disagreements on convictions and practice didn't drive them away or cause them to doubt whether Christ accepts them or not? What if those disputable matters that often drive wedges between gospel believers, what if those dif disputable matters were not seen as a threat to the gospel, but a feature of it? There is a time to separate and, and discontinue fellowship, but the trivial things we often separate over, the sins we commit, 
when we fail to receive one another, the damage we do to the message of the gospel, those things do not glorify God. We need to believe in the power of gospel unity. Paul believed that the gospel was more powerful than the divide between Jewish and Gentile Christians. God said it was possible, and Paul believed it. Can we believe it here at MVBC? Can we prove it by receiving one another in gospel unity? Do you want your faith to be built up by the expression of unity at this church? And as we close, let's take some time this morning and examine ourselves in the light of all this. Let's all bow our heads. As we prepare to take some time and, and also to take the Lord's table, we're reminded that Paul was concerned for the Corinthian church, that there were factions and divisions among them, the opposite of gospel unity. He asked them to examine themselves. And let's take a few minutes to do the same in this way. First, let's examine ourselves concerning remembering Christ. We're about to take the elements. Am I taking these elements as an act of worship to Christ? Am I proclaiming his death until he comes? Do I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins and rose again? If not, I would ask that you not take the elements as you would not be proclaiming his death until he comes. Secondly, let's consider how we are remembering the body of Christ, which is us here. Let's ask ourselves, am I pursuing gospel unity here at MVBC? 1 Corinthians 12, 13 states, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slave or free, all have been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact the body is not one member but many. Is this how I am viewing others in the church? Let's take a few minutes now in silent prayer. Then Pastor Dave will invite you to sing a song then we will take the elements together.